Hey everybody, welcome back to Looking for the Real God. This is Christy Lynn Wood. Today we're going to continue our discussion on spiritual abuse, asking the questions, why is it so common, and what can we do about it? When I first heard the term spiritual abuse and started doing my research on it and started talking to people about things, I started discovering that there is a lot of people out there who have been hurt by Christians or the church or Christian organizations or people who know of people who have been hurt. And it started reminding me of miscarriage, actually, because one in four women supposedly have had a miscarriage, and yet we don't talk about it. And I never knew about other people having miscarriages until I had my miscarriages. And so suddenly people are like saying, oh, yeah, that happened to me, too. But church hurt and spiritual abuse seem to be somewhat like miscarriage or we just don't talk about it. It's just this quiet thing we kind of hold within us, but it never gets spoken about. And I started to wonder, you know, why? Why does this not get talked about? When it comes to church hurt and spiritual abuse, I think there are a few reasons. And some of the books that I've read also support my ideas. So it's not just me making this up. But first of all, so often in Christianity, we victim blame. So rather than actually listening to somebody who's hurt or broken, we blame them. My grandfather said, Christians are the only ones who shoot their wounded. And it's kind of that same idea, like you're wrong because you have a problem. And so we're just going to blame you instead of actually looking at what the real problem might be. You're just bitter. You know, you just can't forgive. You just have this seed of anger inside of you or whatever else we say to people. And so I think that it just gets not talked about because of this whole victim blaming mentality. We don't feel blaming us for our hurt. And at the same time, we're quick to blame others. I think we also have this crazy idea that we need to protect the name of God. I've actually heard people say that, like, don't talk about the bad things that have happened because we need to protect the name of Christ. And I'm like, Jesus can protect himself. (laughs) I don't think we're helping his name by pretending to be perfect. And so There's this false sense of unity or peace that we somehow need to have within the church or a Christian organization because we're trying to protect the name of Christ. The idea that like these people around us aren't perfect, so we need to pretend like they are because that's what God wants, which that's just totally behavior-based and religious and ridiculous, but it's definitely out there. I've heard it. I've seen it on comments, on social media. I've heard it from people, and yeah, it's just not true. And the other idea that I think is so common, why it doesn't get talked about, is because there's this false understanding of spiritual authority that we have sometimes. We have this idea like we can't question spiritual authority. And I've heard false spiritual authorities even use out-of-context scripture, like don't touch the Lord's anointed. And they're claiming to be the Lord's anointed. And so they're saying, you know, you can't touch me because I'm the Lord's anointed. I'm the pastor in the situation. I'm the leader of whatever. And so you can't question me. You can't wonder if I'm doing things right. Nothing like that. You just have to not question me and just believe what I'm saying. And there's also an idea of like misplaced trust. Trust is something that needs to be earned. We can't just be forced to trust somebody. But often you'll hear things like, just trust me. Just trust me. I know what I'm doing. And that was totally what was happening all the time in my old organization. He was like, I'm getting these words from God and you just need to trust me. And that's not true. That's totally wrong. But I think that's why it doesn't get talked about. There's just almost this shame guilt, false sense of unity or peace, false idea of what spiritual authority is, and this victim blaming, like I said. 
But why is this so common? Why does spiritual abuse happen in big churches and in little churches and in these different organizations? What is going on? Why is this so common? After yet another news story about some megachurch pastor who had been caught for inappropriate behavior and fired, I decided to do some research because this kind of thing was starting to become old news. And I was wondering what in the world is going on? First of all, I discovered this is not new. The abuse of power and religion have been best friends since the fall. And throughout history, we've seen broken people using religion to gain power and control. From corrupt priests in the tabernacle, to religious Pharisees who had Jesus crucified, to the Holy Roman Empire prior to the Reformation, to modern evangelical American pastors that have been in the news, like I was saying. And it's not uncommon. As I've talked with a shockingly large group of people who have experienced brokenness, abuse of power, or just regular abuse within a church, like I said, it's not uncommon. It crosses denominational lines. It exists within conservative and liberal settings. There are people that I know who have escaped spiritual abusive situations only to fall into yet another church filled with brokenness and spiritual abuse. And for every mega pastor that makes the news, there are many more smaller churches dealing with the same things. Why? Why does this happen? As I was digging around on the internet, I came across an article by a guy named Dr. Daryl Poles on the American Association of Christian Counselors website. And he talks about how, as an associate pastor, he was nearly destroyed by a senior pastor and ended up resigning in complete despair. And later he discovered that his senior pastor fit the diagnosis of having narcissistic personality disorder. After recovering with help from Christian therapists and psychiatrists, Dr. Poles went on to work as a peacemaker through conflict resolution in the faith community. As he was dealing with these conflicts, Dr. Poles began to notice a large percentage of them stood out as different. Familiar with his own experiences with narcissistic personality disorder, um, he really quickly realized that all these different conflicts had somebody with NPD, or narcissistic personality disorder, in the middle of it all. And as he was talking with a colleague, he began to notice a similar trend, and the two men decided to conduct some research. So they did a survey, and embedded in their survey was a validated NPD test instrument. And with permission, they were able to test an entire denomination in Canada, and the entire denomination's active and retired pastors, and they wondered how many narcissistic pastors they would discover. So interesting. I'm going to read this part right here. It says, According to the U.S. National Institutes of Health, between 0 and 6.2% of the general population has narcissistic personality disorder. However, Dr. Poles and Dr. Ball discovered that 31.2% of the pastors they surveyed met the criteria for full-blown NPD. Not just on the spectrum, this was like full-blown narcissistic personality disorder, 31% compared to the national average of 0 to 6.2%. Their shocking findings are published in a book called Let Us Pray, P-R-E-Y, The Plague of Narcissistic Pastors and What We Can Do About It. I read that and I was like, oh my goodness, that kind of explains a lot. And there was actually a similar study conducted in the Netherlands in the early 2000s that showed that 90% of the pastors surveyed displayed at least narcissistic tendencies, at least. So that's kind of a problem, and it also kind of makes sense about why we're getting so much spiritual abuse and so many things that are happening. Being a pastor is an upfront position with lots of power, praise, and unfortunately, often a total lack of accountability. So it's not just your imagination. 
Research shows us that a significantly above average number of pastors are either narcissistic, they're, they're on the spectrum somewhere, or they have full-blown narcissistic personality disorder. This unfortunately explains why so many of the mega pastors get to the place they are and also why they are falling and failing. And it also explains the shocking number of tragic search situations that I've heard about. So why? How in the world do we get all of these narcissistic pastors in our churches? But you know what? You think about the structure of church. And it really is one person who gets all the glory, who has all the power. You have one pastor who's doing all of that. And then everyone else is just kind of like consumers within the church, which is totally not how church was designed to be. Church was supposed to be a gathering of believers and then people use their giftedness to lead and, you know, whatever. It was never supposed to be this corporate business thing we have now with one mega awesome person at the top. So you think about the way church is structured. And I actually had a therapist that told me one time that most people, she's like, not everybody who goes to seminary goes because they want to shepherd. She goes, many of them go because they like power. They're great talk. They look great at talking. They're very eloquent. They have an awesome charismatic personality and they think they'd make a good pastor or they just think they'd be good at leading. So not everyone who goes to seminary wants to shepherd, wants to love, wants to care for people. A lot of them want power. And so they're probably already on the spectrum where they already have this NPD. And so they're just doing it because they like power. But you look at our celebrity culture that we're in right now. We love celebrities with social media. And so it's just perfect. It's the perfect scenario for somebody who's narcissistic to be like, yeah, look at me. Look at how awesome I am. I mean, I am so awesome. But honestly, it's almost pushed. Like I get into this total trap right now as I'm trying to build a platform, whatever that stupid thing is, so that I can write a book. I want to write a book. And they're like, well, you need a platform. You need a following. You need to have your social media numbers up there. And so you get pushed almost to be this person or try to be this person who's so awesome and who's out there showing how awesome they are. And fortunately for me, I don't think I'm narcissistic because I hate that part. Like I just get in these rebellious ruts where I'm like, I'm not posting anything. All I'm going to post is my pictures of my snowmen and my kids and stuff like that. I don't care if people like me or not. I tend to just get really rebellious and grumpy about it, which is probably safe. I, that's a good thing. And so, but it's out there. You have this push to be this awesome person. And, you know, as a pastor, as a mega pastor, you want to write books, you want to do this stuff, of course, get out there, be awesome. And so you've got this structure of the church. You've got this celebrity culture that we love. Think about all the people we follow and we're, you know, talking about how awesome they are and they're so great and oh, whatever. Or honestly, how many churches do you know where it's not just that church, it's so-and-so's church, the name of the pastor. You've got this person's church, and that's who it is. Instead of being like the church from that town or, you know, the Philippian church, the church at Colossae, like Paul had, it wasn't so-and-so's church. And so I think you've got this structure that's just perfect for narcissists. And as I was reading this, I was just struck by how little we do to stop it. And, you know, most likely there's always been a large number of people with NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, in the pastorate than in the general population, because it's just a place where you can have power and control. And abuse has been happening within churches throughout history. Like, look back at the church and the history of the church, and there has been spiritual abuse that's been happening forever. However, thanks, I think, in part to the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement, people aren't staying quiet anymore, and that's a really good thing. So. We have this scenario where you're going to, I mean, we, there's proven research that there's more narcissistic people in the pastorate than there are in general population. 
And you've got this scenario with the celebrity culture and you've got these victim blaming and false peace and false senses of authority that are allowing it to happen. So the real question is, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? There's a book coming out in March that I am super excited to read. It's called When Narcissism Comes to Church by Chuck DeGroat. And I want to read you guys just the review of it on Amazon and just a little piece of what it's going to be like. Here's the description. It says, why does narcissism seem to thrive in our churches? We've seen the news stories and heard the rumors. Maybe we ourselves have been hurt by a narcissistic church leader. It's easy to throw the term around and diagnose others from afar, but what is narcissism really? And how does it infiltrate the church? Chuck DeGroat has been counseling pastors with narcissistic personality disorder, as well as those wounded by narcissistic leaders and systems for over 20 years. He knows firsthand the devastation narcissism leaves in its wake and how insidious and painful it is. In When Narcissism Comes to Church, DeGroat takes a close look at narcissism, not only in ministry leaders, but also in church systems. He offers compassion and hope for those affected by its destructive powers and imparts wise counsel for churches looking to heal from its systematic effects. DeGroat also offers hope for narcissists themselves, not by any shortcut, but by the long, slow road of genuine recovery, possible only through repentance and trust in the humble gospel of Jesus. I am so excited about that book. Like, I literally cannot wait to buy it. Here's a review that I just love. It says, For far too long, the evangelical church in America has nurtured and supported narcissism in our leadership. The addiction to platforms, influence, new ideas, as well as unbiblical definitions of leadership, authority, and power has sustained a culture that dehumanizes our leaders and exploits God's people. When Narcissism Comes to Church is an important book in a season when we must ask deeper questions of the very structure, metrics, motivations, and means to the work we set out to do in the name of Christ. I love that. Such a good review by Danae Pierre, Director of City to City North America. So what do we do about this? We realize it's out there and maybe we are in a church where you think, gosh, my pastor kind of fits that description. I have a couple of really great resources that I want to share with you guys, so I'll put those in the links in the notes for this podcast. There's also a couple of blog posts that I wrote that have more links to more resources. So there's like a test that you can take. There's a, a article talking about like signs that your pastor's a narcissist, stuff like that. And so it just some really great stuff for you guys. So what do you do once you realize this is going on? And what hope do we have as a Christian community to really just battle this? So I have some things I'd like to just throw out there to you. Some ideas. If this is the case, what can we do as a church? What can we do as Christian people? So here's some ideas. Stop defending. Too often, I see Christians trying to defend a fallen leader rather than calling sin what it is. I hear things like, oh, it could have been any of us, and we just need to give grace. And while these things are totally true, and there's definitely a part in there where we need to give grace and we need to love people, We also need to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, like Ephesians 5.11 says. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. It is okay to call sin, sin. We don't have to defend people, and Jesus Christ does not need us to protect his name. In fact, honestly, it's probably more helpful for the world to see us calling it what it is and stop being hypocrites that it is for them to say, they already know we're broken. They know people are broken. We just cover it up and shove it under the rug like last time. It does not help the broken people of the world that need Jesus to want him anymore. They just think we're hypocrites. So we just need to call sin what it is and stop defending the wrong people. We need to stop giving grace to the wrong people. As a Christian community, we are far too quick to give grace to perpetrators and blame their victims. This needs an about face. We need to give grace and love to the victims of abuse while putting the blame and consequences on the offender. 
God is full of mercy, but he's also a God of justice. He is a God of justice. And so we need to take care of the victims and we need to put the blame on the abusers. It is okay to be a people of justice. We need to stop staying quiet. Manipulative leaders are great at condemning gossip, quote unquote, with a broad sweeping brush. My old leader, my cult leader, created this entire teaching and system called only giving a good report. And then he had another one called the defilement of listening to an evil report. And it was all just baloney. Like it was completely out of context stuff that was just designed to keep people quiet so they wouldn't connect the dots. Just because you verbalize something is wrong doesn't make that gossip. Gossip has to do with the type of information you share, who you're sharing with it, it with, and what your motivation is for sharing it. When abuse is kept quiet, the only people who benefit are the ones that are in power. They're the ones who are being abusing. Those are the ones who are benefiting, not anybody else. And so there is totally a time for saying truth, figuring out who to say it to and speaking that truth. It's not gossip. And you're not the problem just because you notice the problem. Okay, and then there's some things we can start doing. We can start exercising discernment. Just because somebody is a charismatic leader and seems legit initially doesn't make them necessary something we should follow. There was a reason that Jesus called false teachers wolves in sheep's clothing. Like, they looked legit. It's perfectly acceptable to inspect the fruit of someone who is in charge. Like, if you've got somebody in charge at your church or your organization and you're like, man, their fruit is just not lining up with what I should be saying. That's okay to say that. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to look at that. It's okay to notice that. Um, And if you see red flags, it's okay to run. Don't make excuses. It is okay to run. We need to start developing our own relationship with Jesus. You guys know if you followed me for any length of time that I am passionate about the difference between a living relationship with Jesus and a religion that you follow. Religion is so easy to manipulate and control, but when you know Jesus for yourself and the Holy Spirit is inside of you, you are uncontrollable. Nobody can control you and manipulate you because you've got Jesus talking to you himself. We need to start understanding the difference between power and authority. The word authority gets thrown around a lot in Christian circles, especially by manipulative leaders. They try to make you believe they have this biblical authority and therefore you have to follow them. But Jesus is the only true head of the church. And power is the worldly ability to make people do what you want. I love that. Power is the worldly ability to make people do what you want. But according to my current healthy church that I go to, true biblical authority like Jesus had is only available when you live a life so genuine that people want to follow you. And you can't fake that. Did you hear that, guys? I'm going to end on this note right here. Power is the ability to make people do what you want. But true biblical authority like Jesus had is only available if you live a life so genuine that people just want to follow you. You're not making them do anything. You are living with Jesus and people are like, I want to do that too. And that's true authority. And so next time we're going to kind of jump into signs of a false teacher. Because maybe you're kind of wondering, hmm, I don't know. There's just some red flags here, but I just don't know. I just want to throw some signs of false teachers out there to you. And this isn't anything that I've like researched or anything. It's just stuff I've noticed in my own experiences. And then the last episode in the series is going to be on healing from spiritual abuse. And so, guys, I look forward to sharing. Until then, you know it. Keep searching. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would love to have you join me over on my website at christylynnwood.com. For more content, free resources, and opportunities to connect with a community of people who are looking for the real God.